Good afternoon, church. May you uh, stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 28, and it reads, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, of their work. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon. I hope that y'all are doing well. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preface by saying that we got a text earlier this morning from our friends and leadership here at Valley Community, and the, the ACs are going, but uh, it might get a little warm. So, um, and, if, and if it does, that's, I mean, that's just your sin. So, um, <clears throat> with all that being said, my name is Marco, and I serve as a, the preaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. Uh, in the event that you did not catch Miguel, we're going to find ourselves in the final instructions of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're looking at 12, verses 12 through 28, and today we officially land the plane in our series, Captivated, which is based on this wonderful and encouraging letter. Uh, while you open or load your Bibles, just two quick things. If you are new, uh, we'd love to connect with you, whether it's in the pews or in the connect table outside. We have these cards. They say connect on them. I would encourage you, if you want, fill them out. Let us know how we can be praying for you, but also let us take you out for coffee, lunch, or, or dinner, what, whatever is best for you. We'd love to connect. And finally, in the pews, we have these Bibles, and these Bibles uh, are for you. We love God's Word. We love to preach out of God's Word. Therefore, we love to gift God's Word. So if you don't have a Bible or you know someone who doesn't have a Bible and you've been wanting to hook them up, please take one with you and, uh, and, and, and hook them up. Other than that, that's all I got from uh, listening to Miguel. We got a lot to work through, and so let's dive right in. A really good movie, and this is very general, but a really good movie for the most part contains a great last stand. Usually, this is the scene where the hero or the army places all of their eggs in the basket of their beliefs, whether they're defending a fort, their country, the city, their family. This is where they just put all of the eggs in the basket of their beliefs and stand firm on, on what's about to happen. Movies like this, and even throughout the pages of history, moments like this remind us that we are only as strong as the foundation that we stand on. Whether it's an army fighting for their country, a family fighting against the culture, or the church fighting for the faith, it is the foundation, it is the foundation upon which we stand that determines our faithfulness. 
First Thessalonians 5 is Paul's final instructions to the Thessalonians on their last stand, so to speak. Given everything that he has encouraged them with, corrected them on, and instructed them in, he now gives them a final encouragement. And his encouragement is ultimately our main idea, and that is the foundation of our faith determines our faithfulness. The foundation of our faith determines our faithfulness as a church. And in this text, Paul goes to great lengths to remember or remind us that the foundation of our faith is not a building, it's not a program, it's not our awesomeness, but it is our Savior, Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And so in this letter, we're going to examine, man, what does it look like for us as the church to stand faithfully upon this foundation. So let me pray, and then we'll dig right into our time. God, we praise you this afternoon for allowing us to gather, worship, and examine your word together. Lord, this afternoon, would you grant us understanding? Understanding so that we would grow deeper in our love for Jesus. You tell us to ask for what we do not have, but to ask in faith. Therefore, we ask for illumination. We ask for understanding. Lord, we're asking you for wisdom. Holy Spirit, guide our hearts, expose our hearts, comfort our hearts by your word and grace. And for those who do not know Jesus, Lord, would you call them to yourself today? In all our time, may you be glorified. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you are new, last week, Alan preached on James 5 uh, as I was out and did a phenomenal job. But if uh, you are new, in addition to that, if you are new and haven't really kept up with our series in 1 Thessalonians, this is a letter written from the Apostle Paul to a young church in what is called Thessalonica. And as he's been writing to them, he's been encouraging them because he himself is encouraged by God's work in their lives. And so the first half of the letter, we see the apostle just repeatedly and ongoingly shower them with encouragement because of God's work for them. For instance, in the first chapter, he goes on to tell them, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. It is littered with encouragement. And then the second half of the letter, as we're about to examine, or as we began to see, Paul begins to get very practical. And that is a traditional way of Paul's writing. If you ever read any other of his epistles, he begins by showering churches with encouragement based on what God has done for them, how they have been redeemed and saved by Jesus, what he has seen and known Jesus to do for them, and then he transitions somewhere in the middle. And the transition is usually something like a therefore, And so Paul is ultimately saying, because of what God has done for you, therefore you can walk or live or conduct yourselves in this way. And that's why in this final section, there's a lot of do this, do this, do this, do this, abstain from that. It is because this is as a result of who they are, 
or I should say it this way, their activity has been determined by their identity. And so that's where we pick up in this last section of 1 Thessalonians 5. And again, uh, what Paul is ultimately doing is saying, if we are only as strong as our foundation, then we need to know how to stand firmly upon this foundation. We need to know how to stand faithfully upon this foundation. And he goes on to say that the faithfulness of the church begins with faithful leadership. This is in verses 12 through 13. He says, we ask you, brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So before I dig in, here's what I'm gonna say. We're just gonna look at the text very practically because I always find it a little awkward, right, as the pastor to say, hey, this is respect me. I'm not, just read the text. Don't, Don't worry about any of that. It's just I'm very awkward about that. All right, here we go. So Paul says that a faithful church begins with faithful leadership. Here's what he's saying. Ultimately, faithful leaders are important in the church because their role, and in particular, the role of a pastor, is to point the congregation to the person and work of Jesus. More than systems and leadership development, even though those things are important, More than any of that, a good, faithful pastor or pastors point the church to the person and work of Jesus. And in these two verses, we see pastors, those who are among the Thessalonians, we see them do this in at least three capacities. The first one is where Paul says that they labor among the church. And I really love the word among because it's suggesting that pastors or faithful leaders are living among the life of the congregation. That they are not only known by the congregation, but that they know the congregation. They know what's going on in the life of the congregation. They know the challenges of their congregation. They know some of the challenges of their own culture. They are laboring or at work among their own community. Paul continues, he says that uh, pastors, Rami, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. The second capacity is that faithful leaders lead with authority. And uh, this is gonna rub, and it always does, it rubs people the wrong way for, for multiple reasons. Everything from poor church experiences to even abusive church experiences. But considering the text, <clears throat> when a pastor's authority is exercised biblically and in humility, it's really their commitment to their church so that their church would grow to be more like Jesus. Not so that the church would be a reflection of him. When a church comes under that authority willingly and voluntarily, the church is saying that I wanna be led to be more like Jesus, not like my pastor. I wanna be led to be more like Jesus. One other way many writers would talk about this is that a pastor's role is to feed the congregation. The pastor does not feed the congregation with his own opinions. The pastor does not feed the congregation with his preferences. The pastor feeds the congregation with the word of God. Proclaiming the word of God, practicing the word of God in his own life. That is how they lead well and with authority. Finally, he goes on to say, in verse, uh, this is verse 12, he says that they admonish you. You is for the congregation. 
The word admonish is a strong one. And I want you to take note, he's gonna use this word twice in this section, one referring to church leadership and one, referring, one time referring to the congregation. And so when he uses the word admonish, the word admonish means correction, it means to teach, it even means to rebuke. It's a strong, sharp encouragement. The point of admonishing the congregation isn't to show that individuals might be wrong. It's not to show off how much Bible knowledge a pastor have, has. The point of admonishment is to point people to Jesus so that they would repent of their sin, so that they would fix their eyes on the beauty of Christ, so that they would examine their hearts through the word of God for them. When it comes to admonishment, pastors call their congregation to repent. Pastors rebuke their congregation when they're in sin. Pastors admonish the congregation by pushing darkness back, not tolerating sin, but also to encourage in order for the congregation to be empowered. Pastors preach the word of God faithfully confidently and courageously. And in a moment we're gonna see that the reason they ought to do this is because one day pastors will give an account to the Lord God for all those that were under their care. And we're gonna look at that in a moment. But here's what I wanna give you as far as practicality. If you listen to a pastor who makes much of himself, and looks at the word of God very little, or incorrectly, or inaccurately, I'm telling you right now, you should just walk out. Over the last couple of weeks, there's been this one individual, this one pastor who's gotten a lot of heat, and, uh, uh, and I'll tell you his name, whatever, because he's on the internet, that means it's fair game. So his name is Michael Todd. I don't know if you are aware of this pastor, and so he's uh, a pastor in a big church in Oklahoma, and He's gotten a lot of heat for the way in which they held their Easter service a couple of weeks ago. And one of the first things that he says when he comes out during the Easter service, and, and it was really terrible, and he goes out to say, and he says, hey, we're gonna push everything to the edge. We're going to do everything, quote, short of sin. When you hear a pastor say something like that, you should just get up and walk away. What's interesting about that is, he's, he makes that comment, he goes on to say, oh, I just felt the religious people get really, like, get their butt cheeks tight, which is really weird, and that's, whatever. Anyway, so he goes on to say that, and we're just thinking like, yeah, because those are probably the repentant ones, right? So when it comes to something like that, you're gonna begin to see a pastor, or this individual particularly, we see them tolerate sin, we see them embrace sin, and the apostle Paul elsewhere speaks against this. He goes on to say that there will be a time when people will not want to listen to sound teaching. They will not want to listen to the word of God. Rather, what they want is for their ears to be tickled so so that you would say what they want to hear so that you would grow in approval of that church or people or congregation. A faithful pastor sticks to God's word as revealed through God's word. As a result, that's why pastors admonish. It's not for their own platform, but it's to the person and work of Jesus. A pastor's commitment to the gospel is labored intensely and prayerfully. 
See, one of the greatest gifts that a congregation or a flock can give their pastor or pastors is the gift of prayer over them and their family. As a result of their faithful leadership, Paul goes on to say that pastors are to be respected and esteemed. These words have more to do with the pastors being known by the congregation and being acknowledged by the congregation. And so when Paul says that they labor among you or that the work that they're doing among you, the work he's referring to is their commitment to the gospel and the will of God, not their personal agenda or their platform. Faithful pastors, and if any of you, as some of you do, aspire to pastoral ministry, faithful pastors will one day give an account for the flocks that they were entrusted with by Christ. The author of Hebrews says it this way, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. One day, pastors will give an account for the flocks that they were entrusted with. Faithful pastors exalt Jesus before the church in the preaching of his word, They encourage Jesus to the church and community, counseling and discipleship, and they reflect Jesus in their walk before the church so that the church would look to Jesus, not the person. A faithful church begins with faithful pastors who are committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Next, we see faithful members. This is pretty much verses 13 to 16. When it comes to faithful leadership, or just leadership in, the, in, in general, in churches, for many people, that's where it ends. Many congregants, that's where it ends. You've got these leaders, you've got these pastors, and they're the ones who are going to do all the work, and they're the ones who are going to do all of the things necessary. We just show up and consume. But that's not what Paul has in mind as we consider 1 Thessalonians 5. In fact, it's unfortunate for many churches and many congregants to believe this way or to think this way. And so here what Paul says is that in order for a church to be faithful, it also requires not only faithful leadership, but faithful members who are committed to the same gospel, who are committed to the same work of ministry. For instance, in Ephesians 4, Paul tells the church that the role of leadership is to both equip and empower the saints. This is Ephesians 4, he goes on to say, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Therefore, if you're a Christian, You belong to Jesus, isn't that wonderful? In addition to that, you have the Holy Spirit residing in you. God dwells in you as a result of Jesus' work for you. Wow. And you're called to ministry, you're in it. You are called to ministry, you are called to everyday ministry. And in this section, Paul uh, entails two things with ministry, character, and conduct. So let's look at verse 13, or actually, yeah, the, the, the end of 13. He goes on to say, be at peace among yourselves. That's the character of the church. Character can be defined as who you are and what you can be counted on to do. And character is associated with the gospel because who God, God tells you who you are before he tells you what to do. 
Therefore, you are new. Your heart is new. Your desires are new, which means your nature is new. And so when Paul says, be at peace among yourselves, the word peace is what you and I have before God. Because at one point, you and I were enemies of God. We were estranged from God. We were at war with God. And through Jesus, we have obtained peace. As a result of that vertical relationship, now we have this horizontal relationship with one another. Therefore, as the church and the character of the church, we put everything to death like gossip. We repent toward one another. We actually pursue peace among one another, not negotiate whether or not we should have peace, but actively pursue peace with one another, not just because it's what we do, but specifically it's who we are. It is the Christian that is most aware of what peace actually is. And so as a result of of obtaining this peace, of it telling us who we are, Paul transitions into telling us what we should be counted on to do. And here's what he says. And he says, and we urge you. Now, if you remember, Paul's a part of a team. It's a three team. It's him, Timothy, and this other guy named Silas. And so they're writing to the Thessalonians. And so we encourage you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, and see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. We're going to go one at a time. Admonish the idol. Here's that word. Admonish. It's a strong correction, a strong rebuke. In the first portion of this text, Paul tells that to the pastors, to the leaders, that they are going to admonish the congregation. They admonish them toward the Lord Jesus. Why? So that you, the congregation, would be empowered to admonish one another. And so he goes on to say, admonish the idol. The word idol can mean one of two things. It's either going to mean an individual who has gone rogue. They have totally discarded and neglected their responsibilities as a Christian, so they've gone rogue. This would be the Lone Ranger Christian, right? Jesus is my homeboy. They're the ones who are rogue. Or it could mean the individual who has become apathetic, the individual who has become lazy, the one who has neglected their responsibilities to their church, to their family, to the Lord Jesus, to one another. This is the individual who has become apathetic and lazy as a result of irresponsibility and self-indulgence to their sin. More than likely, most commentators would say that's the person Paul is writing to, or excuse me, writing about. And I want you to notice he uses the word admonish. In other words, he's not saying just come alongside them and be sweet. He's saying come alongside them and issue a a, a strong word. It might include a rebuke. It's going to include calling them to repent. It's going to include coming alongside them to remind them of God's promises for them, but it might be firm. It doesn't mean you don't love them. It doesn't mean that it's not done in love. But it's not just pastors who don't tolerate sin. It is also the church. The church does not tolerate sin. And so when we admonish the idol, we're going to come alongside our brothers and sisters. And it might be a rebuke. But it's not going to be a rebuke with some good advice. It's a rebuke with good news. 
He goes on to say, encourage the faint-hearted. The faint-hearted are those who are discouraged and disheartened, right? There, there's some differences in their characteristics. There's one who's neglected their responsibility as a result of self-indulgence and, and apathy. But then there are the faint-hearted, those who are discouraged, those who are disheartened. These individuals need the fresh water of the gospel. They need to drink deeply of the promises of God for them. They need you to disciple them, to pray with them, to support them, to cry with them, to rejoice with them. These are individuals who are easily discouraged. The word faint-hearted literally means little-souled. They're easily discouraged. And so we come alongside them to encourage them to the person of Jesus, to remind them of the promises of Jesus, or sometimes just to sit in the mud with them. You're not gonna have all the answers. You might not even know what to say, but you're willing to sit with them in the mud. The third, he says, help the weak. The word weak are those who are struggling to abandon their sin, the ones who are in pursuit of their sin and its pleasures. They are the ones who may be fighting very little and losing 10, 15 times even more. They are the ones who don't want to let go of their sin. They are the ones who keep running to their sin. They are the ones who stand firm on the, sand, the, the sandy foundation of sin. Whether it's everything from pride and arrogance to pornography to ungodly relationships to, to, to envy and jealousy to anger, all of these ungodly things, not that anger is ungodly, but the way in which you administer it is something else. All of that being said, when he says help the weak, he's talking about those that just can't stop going to their sin. And they know it. Those are the weak. And so when he says, uh, when he uses the word to help them, it's a twofold meaning. He's saying proactively pursue them. In other words, we church, you and I more than likely know individuals in our congregation that are weak. Are you proactively pursuing them because you know of their weakness? Or are you one of those that says, well, they'll let me know. They'll let me know if something's up. You know, when I see them in the, in the foyer, they tell me to pray for them and I journaled about it on Monday. Are you proactively pursuing them? Additionally, the word uh, help means to lay hold of. In other words, as we pursue them, we hold on to them and we don't let go. That means that we're actually thrusting ourselves into their life and mess to either sit with them in the mud, either to admonish them with a rebuke or to help them get out of their sin, just as Job talks about that the church is meant to snatch those out of the fire so that we would ultimately repent, not just because that's what we do, but because Jesus is better. Finally, he says to do good. And that we are to be patient with them all, but he continues, verse 15, and let me actually go back to that. Be patient with them all. It's not a one and done, and it's not gonna come at your convenience. And so he continues, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. He's not saying, hey, let everybody walk all over you. He's not saying, hey, just be passive. It'll be cool. No, he's saying that when it comes to the sinful actions of one another, don't repay it with sin. 
Like here's one of the things that's really fascinating about, about the church. Oftentimes when I've sat with individuals and we talk about something like this, how did you respond to so-and-so or how did you respond to this scenario? Sometimes I see Christians give me this list of negotiations and they give me a list of justification as to why they were cool doing this thing of sinning against their brother and sister because their brother and sister failed them. And none of it is rooted in scripture. None of it is rooted in anything spirit-centered. All of it is rooted in, man, this is the way in which I felt, so I went ahead and did this. When Paul says, always seek to do good, the word always implies this is our lifestyle. Not just when it's convenient. And here's the thing. Paul is telling the Thessalonians to not repay evil for evil, but to always do good. He's telling them to do this in a context where they are experiencing persecution. Two chapters ago, we read about their friends who had died as a result of persecution. And here Paul is saying, hey, always seek to do good. Always seek to do good to one another. Meaning, Go chase them down to love them. If you want to get really nerdy, the word do means zealously hunt down. This character that we have, the conduct that we exhibit, is a result of our new nature. This is actually who we are. The entire Christian ministry that we just walked through isn't a list so that you would earn God's favor. If you're a Christian, you belong to Jesus. Nobody can take that from you. Nobody. This list is not the club rules. We're not a club. We're a church that has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. The church is a new creation that in its character and conduct, we reflect the ministry of imitation of Christ to one another and a watching world. Consider who you used to be. You were once idle in your selfishness and sin, and Jesus pursued you. You were once the faint-hearted, and Jesus comforted you. You were once weak, and Jesus rescued you. Being at peace with him is what he has done for us. We were at one point enemies of God. All of these things, Jesus has set the example in laying hold of us, even in our sin, taking our guilt and bearing its penalty on the cross. You are new. The thing about this exhaustive list, the thing about it to Paul, is that it's not out of character for the church. To Paul, this is the church. To Paul, this isn't preference. This is prescription. This is who we are as the church as a result of our new nature. This is who we are, not only what we do. 
And so faithful members are shaped by their commitment to the gospel and to one another. And so as we've looked at faithful pastors, as we've looked at faithful members, we now come to faithful devotion, the way in which we walk, the way, the purpose of our devotion. And the purpose of our devotion is so that we would grow in holiness and in maturity. And oftentimes we use those two words and they seem intangible, but Paul doesn't use them that way. When Paul references or is talking about holiness and maturity, he's saying you can see it, they're so tangible because that's what exists among the church when she fixes her eyes on Jesus. And so in this last section, this is verses 16 all the way down to 28, Paul goes on to give us several ways to pursue Holiness, And so he talks about faithful leadership, he talks about faithful members, and now he's talking about walking faithfully, right? Walking in faithful devotion. And so the first thing Paul says, and this, it's like bullet points, and so the first thing he says is rejoice always. It's not talking about happiness, though there's nothing wrong with happiness, but happiness is circumstantial. And so Paul is telling them to, to find, uh, to to. Be joyful is a lifestyle that is rooted in the truth of the gospel in spite of our circumstance. True joy comes from knowing God and being known by God. And then he transitions and he says the second thing is prayer. If we're going to walk faithfully, the second thing is prayer. It's not simply communication, but sitting in the presence of God. There's a difference between having communion and complaint, and complaint has a place, but way too many Christians want to complain rather than commune with God. And so here, Paul is always urging a heart that is always open to God. Oftentimes when I'll sit down with individuals and I'll ask, man, tell me about your prayer life. Tell me about how scripture reading is going. Here are the two common answers. I'm not praying as much as I should have. It's non-existent. Those are the two things. And then I see frustrated Christians who are saying things like, man, I just don't hear from God. I just haven't heard from God. I'm just not sure. And so when I ask those questions, man, it is really difficult to commune with someone that you're not in the presence of. One commentator says, it is not in the moving of the lips, but in the elevation of the heart to God that the essence of prayer exists. He continues, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of Christ Jesus for you. That means that we are thankful for what God has done for us in Jesus, but on top of that, gratitude is how we combat bitterness and discontentment. Why? This is God's will. How are you going to push spiritual darkness back in your family, in your, uh, in your own life? Man, one of the ways, one of the diagnostics, if you will, is whether or not you're, gra- you're grateful When we walk in ingratitude, we quench the spirit because we're choosing to believe something else. We're choosing to embrace perhaps the world over the word. However, when we walk in gratitude, it turns us, it turns away from ourselves and toward God in spite of the circumstance. King David goes on to say, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, 
My heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. That's Psalm 16. Paul continues, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. The prophecies, everybody's like, what does that mean? The prophecies are God's word. It is what he has revealed to you through his word. He is saying, hold fast to what God has revealed. Either we are shaped by the word or we're shaped by the world. The world and all of our desires will drown the delight of God. Therefore, we will delight as we devote ourselves to God's word. In doing this, we reject spirituality by testing the spirits because the goal isn't spirituality, it's godliness, to be more like Jesus. And so Paul concludes, abstain from every form of evil, reject sin, run from sin, pursue holiness. All of that can seem exhausting, But as he concludes in verse 23, he reminds us that the same God who saved us is also the same God who is at work in us. So verse 23, now may the God of peace himself. So it's not like God has redeemed you, saved you, and it's like, all right, peace, deuces, figure it out. I'll be over here. It's not like he just left. The same God who has saved you is the same God who is still at work in you. And so when Paul writes, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, here's what he's praying. He prays that God would sanctify you completely. Meaning the work that God began in you, he's gonna see to it all through the end. May God sanctify you completely and entirely. When he uses the word entirely and he references body, soul, and spirit, he's talking every single part of you to be sanctified, not just this one area that you think is off. No, everything to be sanctified, to be made new, to be continually clean. And then finally, to sanctify you blamelessly. In other words, and he concludes this way in verse 23, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, that you would stand faultless before the throne upon the return of Christ. That you would stand faultless before the throne, not only because of his work for you, because of the work he's been doing in you. And then he closes that with a promise. He who calls you is faithful he will surely do it. In a nutshell, Paul is saying, you can bank on this. You can bank that this is the work of God for you. Yes, we're gonna respond to God's work in us, but it's not like he's not actively involved either. And he even practices this himself, right? Verse 25, brothers, pray for us. He's like, now that I've told you everything, now that I've told you this is how you're gonna take the last stand, this is how you're gonna stand faithfully upon this foundation, by the way, uh, I need prayer. (laughs) I need prayer because at this point of writing it, he's about to or has already planted another church that is undergoing a significant amount of persecution. And so he says, brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. 
It's like, hey, make sure everyone is encouraged. Do not leave anyone out in the church. Let them know, yes, that I miss them, but make sure that they are encouraged. Verse 27, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Paul is telling them, man, I'm asking you, I'm commanding you, I'm telling you, this is where you're to be grounded. You're to be grounded in the word. This is where your devotion, this is where you're going to stand. You want somewhere to stand, you're going to stand on the power of the word of God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It is by grace that we don't have to do this. It is by grace that we get to do this. Faithful devotion is cultivated as we respond to the Spirit's work in us. Listen, the church will stand faithfully because of the strength of her foundation. Jesus has promised that to us through his word. He went on to say that not even the gates of hell will prevail against the church. We are engaged in a spiritual conflict, not as lone rangers, but as a family of disciples of Jesus. And if 1 Thessalonians has taught us anything, it's that the church is captivated by the gospel, whether it's in conflict or celebration, brokenness or beauty, all as a result of the finished work of Jesus. Therefore, as we close this series, my prayer is that we would live our lives as a family captivated by the beauty of Christ, marveled at his grace for us, eager to boast about his work in one another and to a watching world, and to be dependent on the Holy Spirit as we await his return. And until that day comes, may we be a witness to a watching world, to the story and glory of God for sinners. So let me ask you, Christian, we talked about Paul listing all of these things out and examined them, and this isn't preferences, these are all, this is a prescription, therefore I don't think any of your preferences were listed. Do you embrace preference over prescription? Is there a complaint rather than communion? Gossip instead of gratitude. See, the beauty of God's grace is that even now he's pouring it out onto us. It is by his grace that we are saved, convicted, and able to repent. Because you and I have access to him. So lean into that. Confess your sin before the Lord. Look to the Lord Jesus because you belong to him. Not me, you belong to Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, love that you're here. My hope is that you would come to know Jesus. The church is all about Jesus. The church is filled with recovering hypocrites. And there's only one difference between the recovering hypocrites and those who don't know Jesus, and that's only repentance. So if you don't know Jesus, the hard truth is that you are not a part of the family of God. You are still an enemy of God. You are still estranged from God. Yet God has provided a way for you to come and know him, and that's through Jesus who stands ready to pardon any sinner in faith and repentance. The beauty of the church is that our foundation is the work of Christ, and it is our foundation that determines our faithfulness. Let's pray.
God, it is in your presence that we confess our sinfulness. We confess our shortcomings. We confess our offenses against you. God, in your presence, we cast our burdens that our hopes, or excuse me, that our bones have grown so weary of carrying. We cast them before you. You alone know how often and how easily we wander from your ways, forgetting your grace and forgetting your love for us in Jesus. Ironically, we confess that we are easily captivated by something else, even when it sounds good, even when it may sound godly, and even when it may sound spiritual. This afternoon, may we, may we stand in awe of your grace for us in Jesus. Lord, may our hearts be actually captivated by the beauty and splendor of Jesus for us. May our life be marked by the fruit of our justification in Christ. Christ.